all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But some people are just better at not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. I don't have a guest for you this week. This week's guest is me. I am going to be talking, uh, some rather probably unqualified uh, talking as usual, about philosophy. And this one in particular, we're going to be talking about the philosophy of presence and balance or uh, staying focused in the present. So um, I don't know. There's a lot to it, guys, and we're going to get right into it. But before we do that, I'll just give you a quick update on Grapefruit which it's the 21st day of Grapefruit right now. It's actually Easter Sunday today. Happy Easter. I've just returned from Bali yesterday, and uh, my brain's a bit addled, but um, I woke up this morning to a lovely text message from a friend saying Happy Easter, so I realized that that must be Easter today. What, what the fuck was I even talking about? Oh, yeah, Grapefruit. It's the 21st of April today, which means that we should be 21 days into this challenge, and I think I've done three letters. <laughs> what we were supposed to be doing was writing a single A5 page letter to somebody every day that we interacted with. Uh, and that letter was a letter of gratitude. So just to write, I don't know, what we appreciate about that person in one A5 page. Like it literally should take you about five minutes to just write down, hey, it was nice the way that you... Uh, said hello to me today. I appreciate you stopping and helping me with whatever the fuck it was. What you know, this like it's so easy. And for some reason, I can't fucking do it. Obviously, I've had a, a hectic month. We Melina and I have both been crazy busy this month um with the national championships, me doing some more video projects and uh flying to Indonesia to see my brother get married or one of my brothers, I should say. And uh yeah, so it was all fucking a bit chaotic. There's no excuse, though, and uh, I don't know. I'm, I think we might have to replay this month of gratitude again when um, we're not so ungrateful. <laughs> um, so I have done fuck all about it. I'll try. I've got another week left of this month, so uh, I'll focus now this week on making sure I write one letter every single day just so at least I can kind of finish the month out strong. Next month, we're uh, calling it May Venture, and we're going to go on an adventure every month, so that's exciting, um, but I'll give you more details on that when we get closer to it. Also, um, this podcast is supported by people that listen to it, aka you. If you care uh, to support the podcast, you can do that at, uh, you can go to lornabremner.com and view your options, or you can just go to Lorna Bremner, oh, sorry, patreon.com. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Lorna Bremner, and uh, you can pick your options there. It's five bucks a month if you want to. Uh, that helps me buy the recording equipment that I've got and uh, fund my time and energy. Uh, like these kind of podcasts that I'm doing now, those solo podcasts take me oh, fucking embarrassingly long to prepare. I research the whole thing, write it out, and then record it, and get mad at myself every time I say something stupid and then re-record it and then re-record it. <laughs> it takes a bit of time and energy. But um, 
I fucking love doing it. It's always going to be free. Um, but if you guys ever want to contribute to the podcast, then by all means, please do go to there or just tell your friends. If you like one episode, tell your friends, share it around, whatever. I just I would prefer that the people who like it and enjoy it are the ones contributing to it rather than um, getting sponsors for some shit that you guys don't give a fuck about because uh, it's dumb and annoying. Bill Burr does a really great job. If you've never heard Bill Burr's podcast, it's fucking great, but he does a good job uh, reading his advertisements. So maybe, uh, you know, there's ways around it. Anyways, thank you for listening as always. And uh, let's get straight into the meat of this podcast today. So today I wanted to talk about the philosophy of presence or what it's like to be consciously aware of your immediate experience so that you don't become an asshole or, you know, possibly get accidentally trapped in a cult. (laughs) Um, In the current time, uh, and this kind of runs off of our previous month of Meditarch, uh, where we were doing mindfulness meditation every night. And uh, so in the present time, we, people generally call this philosophy mindfulness. And Mindfulness is rooted in ancient Hindu and Buddhist philosophies. Uh, Pretty much almost every single religious tradition that's ever existed generally kind of starts with this core idea, and then it branches off into various uh, religious organizations and or cults that mangle this idea and manipulate it to give people more power. What's odd about it is that if you are practicing mindfulness or presence, consistently, it, it in theory should be the thing that stops you from getting sucked into a cult. But what's fucking weird about human beings is like the more that we come up with ideas of how to live a better life, the more we need to tell other people about it. And the more other people become attracted to you because you've figured out how to live a more mindful present life. And then that gives you power. And then you forget how to be mindful and present and you end up being a fucking cult leader. And you start telling people that the only way to, the only path to God is, um, I don't know, your semen on their forehead. You know what I mean? Like this, this is how cults start. It's like somebody has a great idea. Somebody learns how to embody that idea and really kind of figures it out. And then they fucking try and make money off of it or have sex with people off of it. So, (laughs) that's the subject of today's podcast is I'm going to go into some details about how people end up getting sucked into cults and how we can avoid uh, ourselves getting sucked into cults. And then I'm going to give you some cult ideas from the various cults that I've been sucked into over time. Start with the first one and the one that I'm kind of most obviously annoyed at consistently, and that's the old Instagram influencer. So if you're following an Instagram influencer, and why would you? But if you are... You may have heard uh, some of these ideas and mindfulness in like a cute little catchphrase. Things like, just be in the moment. Be your authentic you. Realign yourself. Be in your power. Hold space for the people that love. Hold space for your authentic self. Um, If you've seen that and thought like, what in the fuck are you on about? Then, you know, you're definitely right to be confused. You probably still liked the picture because they were probably like wearing some exercise tights and showing their booty and going, I just wanted to be myself. Look at my tights or whatever. Like I'm just I'm just enjoying a coffee in my exercise gear. <coughs> whatever. Um, but like this, there, there is at the core of mindfulness and at the core of these kind of um, 
nonsense phrases. There is actually a really cool idea. So I am hoping today that I can give you the root of this cool idea without all the nonsense culty bullshit. And, um, you know, so then that way you're not just completely turned off of it because somebody's a fuckwit on the internet. Um, no, I'm not just being mean for the sake of it. I, <laughs> I mean, I, this idea is a fucking great idea and it is totally trapped in the hands of fuckwits. Um, it's like this new trend of pure self-promotion that's like thinly disguised under the mask of providing guidance and teaching you to be better. I mean, like, besides the obvious cuntiness of just taking advantage of vulnerable people for your own validation, it's also one of the earlier symptoms of a greater problem, a.k.a. the cult. You know, the more sycophants, uh, and by the word sycophants, I mean people that are just, you know, sucking up your ass because they want to get something from you or they think you've got something that they need, um, is that you start to develop this following of people that don't question what you're talking about. They just blindly enjoy your fucking exercise selfies. And then all of a sudden you think that you've got like something special that people need from you and then it kind of recreates this feedback loop that you're more important than they are and that you need more of these people. They prop you up and blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden you're coming on their face in order to teach them how to meet Jesus. Now, for what it's worth, I'm also aware that I'm personally in the practice of oozing my own stolen ideas into the internet and uh, could be at very real danger of being a fuckwit myself. But um, I think the distinction here is in the use of the language and the overall intention of the thing. So um, we'll start with language at least. These kind of phrases, like the be in your power, claim your divinity, these phrases themselves are not designed to be actual advice. What they are is like uh, it's a set of linguistic devices, language devices, to create an in-group and an out-group. Um, and the official term for this in English is called rhetoric. Uh, so you've probably heard that term before. And basically it is language that's designed to be persuasive but doesn't really contain any actual meaning in itself. So, like, for example, my favorite one is um, I'm holding space for you. And now, if you've never heard that in the New Age spiritual context, it literally means nothing. Like holding space for you. It's like you're holding the air for on behalf of somebody else like you know what I mean the fucking thing doesn't make any sense um what it what they're trying to what it actually means like translated into the new age spirituality language is that they're actively listening to you they they are going to sit there and listen to you speak um without prejudice with open mind or whatever so that you can get something off your chest that's what holding space for you is supposed to be but obviously it just means fucking nothing what it mean what it is designed to do like meaning is not the point of rhetoric it's the point is if you know what i'm talking about if you understand that phrase then you're in and if you don't then you're a dickhead and you need help that's essentially the the point of rhetoric it's the attempt to divide people into in-groups and out-groups. Now, obviously, rhetoric isn't just confined to the world of New Age spirituality <laughs> and influencers. Politicians, fucking cult leaders have been using this shit to, you know, like Trojan horse their ideas into your psyche since the beginning of time. And obviously, in the case of the cult leaders, usually what they're trying to do is also slip their Trojan horse dick into your unsuspecting courtyard. <laughs> 
Because we all know that the true path to enlightenment is like raw, organic, unrefined, cold-pressed semen all over your chest and face. Though I'm not joking. I mean, while I was researching this podcast, I found that even the most gentle religions, even the ones that I have really enjoyed in my time, a.k.a. Buddhism, um, will end up, they always have got tentacles going off of the branches of these religions where someone is trying to fuck you. And all you have to do is be able to keep a secret and you're going to get laid. Like it's fucked. <laughs> but anyway, I'm not talking about sex cults today. I'm talking about how not to get sucked into a cult or how to not suck your way into a cult or whatever the case may be. Cults exist because we as humans have like a ridiculously strong core need to be accepted in our tribe. And the theory on this, I've talked about this before in the Transactional Analysis podcast, but the theory on this is that an evolutionary adaptation for, what? Is that this is an evolutionary adaptation for our survival. Um, we're such fucking useless animals that we would immediately get mauled by a tiger if we got cast out by the tribe. So this is why it's such, we have this really core instinctual need to be accepted by our peer group and the people around us. Uh, it's fucking amazing how much crazy shit we'll actually believe and really destructive shit that we'll say and do in order to just be accepted into the group. Um, so this is why rhetoric works. It's because appearing to understand is more important than actually understanding. This kind of shit, like the cult leader stuff, like these phrases are purposely un unclear to create a sense of kind of tension and divide um, inferior and inferiority in the person who doesn't quite get it. If the point was to express an idea, obviously it would be done just as plainly as possible. Like, so if we go back to that example of I'm holding space for you, like the uh, real thing to say in that moment would be like, listen, if you need to talk to somebody, I'm here, no judgment. I don't care what you've got to say. I just want to hear you and hope that you feel better. You know what I mean? Like something very clear and obvious. Like that's, that's as simple as you have to do. But if you like put your palms together at your chest and go... It's okay, I'm holding space for you now. I'm just like, what the fuck? It's just gross to me. I find it gross. Maybe it's saving time, I guess. I don't know, you're saying less words. But I don't think anyone understands it any better. So, um, you know, like, like, for example, like a phrase like, it's really important to just hold space for your lover. Anyone that hears that is going to have two options. Like the first one is to just completely reject it and just be like, what the fuck? It's idiotic. I don't understand what that means. You sound like a fuckwit, and I'm going to go back to, you know, watching the football <laughs> or whatever. And what happens there is that that person then, you know, kind of misses whatever wisdom may have happened in that environment. Like maybe there is some possible help that they could use to take better care of the person that they love, but instead they've missed all that because they just have solidified themselves in the group that goes, fuck those guys, they're idiots. And then on the other hand, someone else might hear it and go, huh, wait a second, am I missing something? Like, I'm feeling a little bit uncomfortable and unhappy in my life, and I feel like I, you know, my relationship isn't perfect, and I would like to do something to fix it, but I'm not really sure I understand what that fuck that means. But maybe if I knew how to hold space, I would be happier. Is that going to make me happy? And so this second group of people, the people that want to understand are usually people like me who want to feel better about existing, want to kind of do more with their potential, want answers about how to improve their lives or their general well-being or whatever. In psychology, they call this um, like trait openness, where somebody is kind of like 
open to the idea of collecting different inputs all the time. The opposite of that is usually your conservative thinker, a conscientious type of person who's pretty set in their ways. And now, so if we go into this group of open-minded type of people, we can also break them into two categories. And uh, so people are generally open-minded for two reasons. Either one, they're just generally curious and they've kind of been brought up in this way or this is just the natural state of their being that they're kind of like curious about new ideas. They like learning stuff. They like exploring ideas, experimenting, whatever. And then the other group of these people are desperate. Now, you're not locked into one category or the other. These things come about from your life circumstances. It depends totally on what's going on in your life on the day that you see that sexy duck face gym selfie type thing, whatever. You get what I mean. When the influencer's post appears on your newsfeed and it says, you can change your life, either you're going to be like, yeah, no, nah, I'm okay, or you're going to be like, fuck, please help me. My dog just died. My boyfriend just broke up with me. I've lost my house, and I fucking need some help. So that's the kind of shit that happens. The first type, the curious people, are sort of generally okay in where their life is at, but they're aware that there's always some room for improvement, and they have got time and mental stability to sort of explore their options and experiment a little bit. They'll take an idea on board, try it out, and then discard it if it seems like a pile of shit. The desperate, on the other hand, uh, you know, really fucking need some help immediately. They're usually in a state of turmoil. Something's recently changed in their life, which has caused them to completely reassess reality. They've experienced, say, trauma, sickness, grief, whatever. Um... And they're kind of desperate to find a solution to the agony of their present existence. There's no time for curious experimentation because they need help right now. Um, Also, P.S., I'm not talking about uh, like the 80% of the entire world's population that live in such poverty and extreme... (laughs) um, Dis, what's the word? Disarray. You know, like somebody who's living in Syria right now who could at any moment have their house exploded... Um, that's not, I'm not talking about these people because they are not even looking at the Instagram influencer. They're just trying to get food to feed their family and make sure they don't get exploded today. So what I'm talking about is like people that, you know, the 20% of us wealthy people that have nothing better to do than shout things into the black hole of the internet and then constantly question our existence. Um, so the second group of the wealthy 20%, uh, that we would call the desperate is sort of the intended prey of the social media influencer and the catchphrase fuck witness or the uh, eventual cult leader. Desperate people don't have the strength or time to come to their own conclusions. They need someone to show them the way right now. And this is the in- influencer's wet dream. Imagine this, like an entire army of people who are just going to eat up whatever the fuck you say because they want to be let in and awakened in order to ease their suffering. This is cult leadership 101. Say something in an obscure and confusing way, but with confidence and a sexy pair of tights and fucking watch the likes roll in. You know what I mean? Then all of a sudden you can start selling products on the internet. And I, I don't know, man. I, I, like, it, it, you didn't even need the internet before because Charlie Manson didn't need the internet. He just, all he had was relied on was an idea and charisma and it fucking worked for him. Right, He got people to murder other people on his behalf. <laughs> and he didn't even use the internet. So imagine where we can go from here. The future's limitless. 
Um, now, so where you sit on this sort of desperate and curious scale isn't a reflection of your personality or whether or not you're a good person. Um, like, so if you're feeling right now that I'm making fun of you for being desperate or like being sucked into a cult, don't think that it's not that it's like, this isn't a reflection of you being a weak cunt or anything. This is like at certain moments in your life, we constantly change. We constantly slide up and down this scale when things are comfortable and we're doing good. We're open-minded. We're relaxed. We're okay. Like whatever thing, anything can happen. It's no big deal. We can deal with it. But when life situation changes and you need help now, you're going to slip up that scale towards the desperate end and, And that's ideally what the point of this podcast is today is kind of teach you how to try and avoid slipping into that world where, you know, you possibly get cummed on in the face because you think it's going to get you a million bucks. (laughs) Do they have pyramid schemes like that? I mean, do I wonder, I, I should have looked into that while I was researching this. Like if there are any pyramid schemes that the leaders of the pyramid scheme are fucking all of the... I'm sure there are. I mean, everyone in Hollywood fucks everyone, and that's the biggest pyramid scheme there is. Anyway, um, so how do you know if you're desperate or curious? How do you know if you're doing okay or not? You know, because we have all of, we also have a pretty amazing amount of cognitive filters inside our head that will convince us that something is good or bad or right or wrong because of a really core need that we have to feel good, feel okay, feel normal, feel safe. And so sometimes you'll be following somebody and at your core, you're kind of like, oh, this doesn't really feel right. But you ignore it because you're like, nah, but but the end result will be worth it. This will be worth it. No, I, I know he's a good man. I know he's a good man. But at the end of the day, you know, he's still trying to fuck you or whatever. So My aim today is to explain one method of managing these extreme highs and lows and all of the shitty decisions that tend to come with it without rhetoric and um, with obviously without the aim of trying to get you guys into a cult. (laughs) So what I've decided to do, and I hope this is interesting to anybody, is uh, I'm going to dissect a phrase which... Uh, I learned in Muay Thai, but found out that it had its metaphorical match. What is the word I'm looking for? Uh, In Muay Thai, it has a very physical, descriptive way of being. And that, I discovered, is a very good metaphor for all of the Buddhist teachings that I've learned over the past uh, six years of my life. So when I heard this one phrase, I went, oh, fuck, that's what they meant when they were saying all this shit to me uh, at my meditation classes before the leader come on my face. So the phrase is, back to the center. So uh, at the very real risk of this becoming rhetoric, I'm going to spend the next I don't know, 40 minutes explaining this to you. I'll explain it through the world of Muay Thai first because it's really interesting to me and it's always really interesting for me to see how physical things can be um, metaphorically applied to your life. Because I find anytime you're trying to get uh, digest an idea that might be kind of complicated, if you take it back to physical presence in your physical body, uh, it makes a lot more sense because we're really good with doing things with our hands uh, physically, because we're animals of the physical world. You you get what I mean. I don't need to keep explaining this. So one day during one of my fight camps, my trainer and I were working on basic ring control, which is uh, your positioning inside the boxing ring. And so he yelled out to me, back to the center. 
And this has two meanings in the world of Muay Thai. Uh, one is come back to the center of the ring, which is uh, don't chase your opponent around the ring. Get to the center so that you're not on the ropes and you're not expending a bunch of energy by just running around in circles. And two, more crucial than the first, is to get your back to the center of the ring, meaning put your back, which is like the obviously the back part of your body, your spine, uh, to the center of the ring. If your back is to the center and you're facing your opponent, then your opponent's back is against the ropes, which is generally not a place that anybody wants to be. You know, like we have a term in our normal everyday society, like, oh, his back was up against the ropes or he was cornered. And that usually means, fuck, I've got no way out. I've got no options. And that's not generally any good. Um, so when I teach this concept in the gym, uh, I have the fighter sort of imagine that they're guarding something precious in the center of the ring. Um, and if, like one of my clients I know has a dog that she loves. And so I said, like, your dog is in the middle and your opponent's trying to get at your dog. So you put yourself between your dog and your opponent. Um, so then I have their opponent start on the ropes on the outside and try to get to that thing in the center. And all the fighter in the center needs to do is just keep themselves between their opponent and the dog. Um, so the main idea is that if you are kind of composed and pivoting around the center, your opponent has to run around a lot. They have to take, I don't know, five times the steps to get to the middle from where you are. And all you have to do is just pivot around one foot. And, um, if at any point in the fight the trainer yells out back to the center, then it kind of like helps you realize, oh, fuck, I've been sucked into a chase. I've been running around and you can kind of pull yourself back, regain your balance and then come back to the center, regain control of where you are in relation to your opponent and then also the fight itself. This way you can serve energy and then you sort of go back to putting your opponent where you want them rather than, um, you know, just getting caught in the chaos of the fight. Now, this kind of ring control, this particular kind of ring control is part of a broader, distinct style of fighting that they call Muay Cow. Um, uh, so like in the same way that we group musicians into genres, um, you know, rock music, rap music, whatever, uh, in Thailand, fighters generally are grouped into the kind of style of fighting that they seem to prefer. And ring control tactics are a major part of this style. Muay Cow means knee fighter. And this kind of fighting is all about putting forward pressure on your opponent so that they have to back up to get away from you until they can't go anywhere. And then once they've got their back against the ropes or they don't really have anywhere to escape, then you can use your close range weapons like your knees and elbows. Um, one of the best examples of this is Diesel Noy. He is one of the greatest uh, Thai fighters from the golden era and probably one of the best and most well-known Muay Cow fighters from Thailand. And uh, I watched a great video about this. Her, um, there's a lady, she's an American girl called Sylvie Von Itsu Douglas. And she has an Instagram, Facebook page, and also has a Patreon page where she is creating a thing that she calls the Muay Thai Library, where she's going to all of these great, um, classic, great golden era Muay Thai fighters and trying to get them to explain their knowledge and then recording all of it and putting it up in a library so that we can preserve uh, the history of Muay Thai over time. It's it's amazing. I'll put the links up on my website if you guys want to go and see it. Um, so while I was watching a couple of her videos with Diesel Noy, this is what he was kind of explaining. One of his favorite tactics that he liked to use was to just sort of wear his opponent down by blocking their kicks with his shins 
And every time he blocked, he would just ever so slightly creep forward. And I've shown this a bunch in classes. So if you uh, are in my classes, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about because I would have taught this already. The idea is that you kind of just block really strong and then slowly creep forward. He keeps his back to the center, stand his ground, and let the opponent sort of tire themselves out by throwing kicks at, their, at his body. He blocks it, creeps forward, blocks it again. And then suddenly the kicker is a bit tired now because they've been throwing a bunch of kicks and throwing a bunch of strikes at him. And now suddenly their back is up against the ropes. He's worn no damage. He's made no uh, signal that any of the kicks hurt. And then as soon as he gets them against the ropes, he just unleashes knees into their ribs and face. Um, and he said the key to this tactic is to be completely unfazed by the kicks. You have to make the kicker think that everything that they're doing is boring. And the harder the kick, uh, the more pathetic they are. So even if it hurts, you don't show it. You just kind of keep creeping forward until you've got them where you want them and then do what you want. Um, so, but now there's another style and this is probably more well known if you're not, uh, particularly involved in the sport of Muay Thai, or even if you kind of are just generally aware of it. Um, and that is called Muay Femur, which is all about evasion and technical striking. It's like kind of the exact opposite of Muay Cao. Um, Sanchai is the most well-known current example of this style of fighting. So if you want to look it up, um, Sanchai is really well-known. Well, he's well-known for inventing the cartwheel kick, which is like where he does a cartwheel and then kicks you in the face. Um, and this kind of fighter is incredibly technically skilled, but hyper-intelligent in the ring. They are constantly avoiding damage by using reflex and speed. And they conserve all their energy by making their opponent fall into their traps. So they are one example of when having their back against the ropes is actually okay. They don't mind letting that knee fighter think that they're pushing them back into the ropes and then using the ropes uh, explosively to trap the opponent into uh, strike legs taking a step back and then driving a knee forward or uh, leaning out of the way, slipping out around the corner and then um, attacking back or whatever. So um, <laughs> it's an incredible, it's very flashy. It's a very beautiful style to watch, but it has really embarrassing consequences if it isn't done well um, because it's, you're supposed to look like you're really cool and nothing's happening, but if you're dancing around one minute and laughing in your opponent's face and then next minute you're asleep on the mat because you tried to do a mean lean back and then fell over and knocked yourself out. <laughs> I mean, it's that, that classic example of, um, oh, who was it? It was Anderson Silva. He was like making fun of Chris Weidman, I think. Yeah, it was Chris Weidman, making fun of him, dancing around at him, and then he just gets punched in the mouth and then he's asleep. And you just look like a complete fucking moron. Um, but anyway, so to summarize the two styles, it's like one is a patient hunter that's just slowly stalking and cornering its prey. That's the Moy Cow fighter, the knee fighter. And then the other one is like the tricky, sneaky, wily prey, outsmarting and frustrating the hunter. So every time the hunter moves forward to strike, the prey's not there anymore. I just watched an amazing example of this at Destiny Muay Thai last weekend. Um, Albert Tua is a 17-year-old fucking prodigy. He's an incredible fighter to watch. Um, and he is a, is a very perfect example of the Moifamu fighter. He's just totally, completely evasive. No matter what you try and do, he is just constantly, he, he's there one minute and gone the next. It's pretty incredible. Um, now where the fuck am I going with all this? The key to both of these styles is pure relaxation. Even the Moifamu fighter, which is very, um, flashy and 
cool looking. They are so calm and relaxed. There's not a hint of desperation in what they're doing. And this is something that we in the West tend to overlook in favor of uh, pure chaos and aggression. Over here, we sort of glorify the blood and guts and aggression and fucking give it your all to be a hero style of fighting. This is the like, nah, fuck it, I'm going to get mine no matter what it takes kind of attitude. Like the crowd, <laughs> and it's forever frustrating to me. I'm not a big fan of the UFC. I find it way too fucking commercialized and um, I don't know, I think it's a bit of a circus, but like the whole crowd will start booing in the UFC when fighters are taking too long to hit each other or like working out the complex maze of infinite muscular adjustments <laughs> in a jujitsu hold. Like we're so impatient and easily, easily bored because we can't, we don't understand what's going on in the fight and we can't see any action. We want to see somebody just getting socked in the face over and over again. We don't have time to appreciate the chess game that's actually going on. We just want to see someone's head get split open. And this is not just our fighting. This is indicative of our culture in general. We tend to sort of fetishize the busy, stressed out guy that fucking sacrifices everything to work his ass off to make something of himself. You know, the self-made man, the fucking thing that Donald Trump is trying to say. It's the fucking wolf of Wall Street. It's this bullshit mentality that you just work your ass off, you focus on yourself, and you get to the top, and then everything else is going to be fine. Then, every, then you're going to be okay. Then you're going to be happy. Once you get success, then you're going to be happy. It's fucking insane, man. Um, this is why we're all anxious and fucked up, because even when we get to there, even when we've worked our ass off, we've fucking stood on everyone else's heads to get mine, I got to get mine, it's about me, it's about my family, whatever, you say that. But that whole time you're stressed out and working and running around and trying to do things for your family, you're not there for your family. They don't know who you are. And you finally get to the top. You finally get that house, that Ferrari, that whatever. You're not, that is not going to satisfy you. You miss the point. It's possibly 10 years or 12 years or 40 years of your life that you've missed because you're so stressed about getting to this end result. And then what? Then what happens? You know, there's nothing at the end of that except for more trinkets and bullshit. And this is why everybody at those levels is all, we're constantly addicted to drugs. We're constantly drinking. We're try constantly trying to satiate this really deep feeling of disconnection and loneliness. And I mean, especially, I mean, this is why I feel like I don't know personally, obviously, what it must be like to be a famous person is that you have all the people in the world wanting to know you, but you know nobody and nobody actually knows who you are. You're just a thing. You're just an object to them. You're this material object to everybody else. And the more famous you become, the more you have to isolate yourself away from people because people need things from you. Suddenly you become a thing that is desired rather than a thing that is to be connected to. Um, and it's fucking scary, man. But anyways, um, and even just like on a normal scale, even when things are going really well, and myself included, we tend to invent a struggle to get through or else we're afraid that you know, like we're not doing enough. People are going to think we're lazy or useless. <laughs> like when I'm, when I've got all my shit together and I'm cruising along just fine, my fucking brain will invent some reason why I'm unhappy about something. Like I cannot just relax and be okay. I've always got to be like, Oh no, but I'm, yeah, but I just have more thing. I, I need something. It's fucking stupid. Over there, over in Thailand, it's all about composure and relaxation. In fact, the more that you try, the worse you look. 
if a fight is close at the end of the fourth round with no clear winner, um, when they come back out to the fifth round, both fighters will back right off and just kind of dance around the ring, essentially sort of trying to mind fuck the other fighter into thinking that they've lost. So if either one, either one of them shows even a hint of desperation, that will cost them the fight. So the key of a great Muay Thai fighter in Thailand is to remain perfectly calm and clear inside the violence. In the West, when you're down on the scorecards in the third round, fourth round, you come out swinging. You come out, give it your all, give it everything you've got. And the crowd erupts, the crowd roars. It's an amazing thing. Oh, fucking give it your best. You showed so much heart. And in some ways, like that's an admirable trait to not be to not be upset that you're losing, to come out and give it your best shot and do your best. But at the same time, it's still, again, contributing to this mindset that like, oh, the winning is the best thing I have to fucking win. It's like, I find personally, that culturally, it is uh, more conducive to general overall life happiness. Well, I don't know. I mean, both of them are kind of manipulative, aren't they? But... Anyway, so when we say, because um, it is, it's like, it's like I'm just going to pretend like I don't give a shit in order to mind fuck you into thinking that you have to give a shit. And then in the West over here, it's like, I'm going to force you to give a shit because I'm not going to let up on you. And, and it, like, this is the vision of like the person's bleeding face, drool hanging out of their mouth. They're swinging for the house. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's, I think it's admirable to try to give you your best a hundred percent. But also I think that that's how you fall into traps. That's how you get caught. That's how you get clipped. And that's how you go to sleep. It is better to not let yourself get into that situation and constantly plug forward with this kind of beautiful, uh, if it's a Moy cow style or Moy femur style to just totally patient, calmly relaxed and move with the flow of the thing rather than trying to force it one direction or the other. Anyway, So when we say back to the center in Muay Thai, we're not just talking about like where you're standing in the ring or how your body is positioned in the ring, but also where your awareness is in relation to your emotions. If you let your emotions get the better of you by getting mad that you got hit or feeling scared that you're losing or listening to that fucking dumb voice in your head that says that you're tired and that you can't keep going, you're going to make a mistake out of desperation. In order to avoid that trap, the idea is to continually focus your attention on the immediate present what's happening right now. We say it, you know, like taking one round at a, at a time. It's not about the fight. It's about each round, one round, one strike, one combination, one move at a time. Block the kick and then deal with the next thing that's happening. Um, this way, all of your energy is available to focus on the task at hand. If we are out, like our attention is out drifting into the tendrils of ideas and fantasies of the past and the future, all your energy starts to disperse itself out there into, oh, what would this be like? I know I've talked about this a fucking ton on the podcast, but like the idea, like when I'm working on a drawing and I start thinking, oh, this is a good drawing. Oh, maybe someone will buy this drawing. Oh, maybe I wonder how many likes I'll get on Instagram. You know, some fucking stupid nonsense like that. Straight away, I'm disconnected from the drawing. I've taken myself out of the moment. I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing anymore. And I'm thinking about some bullshit fantasy in the future. Also, in a Muay Thai fight, when you start thinking, oh, fuck, I've been hit a bunch. Oh, I think I'm tired. Oh, I you're thinking about the past. You're not, you, you are completely get swallowed up in the past, and then suddenly you've got no energy to move forward because your whole brain is occupied with some fantasy of what just happened to you. 
So the only thing that we can know for real is that you're here right now. Now, obviously, this isn't a permanent state of being. Um, if, as learning animals and as uh, social animals, we have to learn from past experiences, learn from teachings that other people have taught us, and that requires us to have a concept of time, of linear time, that things will happen in the future and things have happened in the past and we can learn from what happened in the past in order to apply them to the future to avoid future suffering, whatever. So this is kind of the way that we navigate the world. But taking your time periodically to get out of that linear state of mind, uh, linear state of being, and focusing on the only thing that you know right now is that you are here right this very second. Our attention is a tricky bitch, and we are constantly fluctuating. But the general idea at the core of most schools of Buddhist thought and ancient Hindu thought and uh, the more, more modern mindful stuff is that every once in a while, take a little break. Step back, pause, and accept that this is where you are right now. A few deep breaths. Feel what it feels like to be in the inside of your body. And what that does is it just, it stops all of the chaos and the stories and the nonsense thinking inside your head. And even then at that moment when you go, oh, I just need to stop for a second, regroup, collect myself, that moment your brain will go, no, there's no time for that. You can't fuck it. It's like, no, there is. Why would you go out into the world like half-dressed? You need to take your time. When you leave the house, you take enough time to just collect your shit so you've got everything you need and then you go. How many times have you not collected the shit you need and had to go back into the house to get more stuff and then go back and then go back? This is how we operate constantly with our mental state. We are never collecting ourselves before we go to do something, we are just fucking operating in a state of chaos. So the idea of this mindfulness stuff is just take a deep breath, slow it down, regroup, and then focus your energy on whatever the thing is you have to do. So um, the rough general aim is to like periodically solve the drifting attention problem to reduce unnecessary suffering in your life and the life of uh, people around you. Now, um, I just recently went to Bali, and uh, I was over there because one of my adopted brothers got married, and I have been sober for three and a half years. Well, not sober. I don't know if I can call it sober because I still uh, allegedly smoke weed periodically or eat weed, really, I should say, and um, partake in other various things, but I just haven't been drinking any alcohol for three and a half years, and... For a long time, I, it just served zero beneficial purpose to me. I stopped drinking because I was drinking excessively, continuously, and uh, it was causing me constant shame and annoyance, but I still couldn't stop myself from doing it. So I would, like I'd wake up in the morning fucking hungover. I would drink a lot of whiskey, so I would have like this burning in the base of my throat, just like this fucking horrific heartburn type of thing. Like felt like something was just, you know, like there was a steam engine in the inside of my throat, just burning up my inside of my throat. And I'd wake up in the morning, couldn't talk. There was probably some stranger in my bed that I didn't fucking know. And I had no interest in getting to know. Um, sick and deeply ashamed of whatever the fuck happened the night before. 
And so I'd wake up, try and clean myself up, go like wash the night off of me if I could go out, try to go to the gym or whatever. I still went to the gym and I still drunk like green juices because I thought somehow in my head that was going to like reset the balance. And then by 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, this like horrific shame and dismay and despair and loneliness of my own existence would overcome me to the point where I was like, well, fuck it. The only thing that's going to solve this is to escape again. So I just start drinking again. And I was on a constant cycle like this. And I worked in the mine, so I would uh, be at home for a week or for a weekend, and then I'd go back to the mine for either four days or seven days, depending on the, the cycle I was on. And while I was out at the mines, I didn't drink at all. So it wasn't like I was physiologically addicted to drinking booze that I just needed to be drinking. It was like when I went back to the mines, I would put myself in recovery or whatever. And it was almost like uh, like I deserved to feel that withdrawal and feel that horrific, aching shit. And I just... I. I put it to the mines. I said, oh, this is me being lonely, working in the mines for a company that I hate, for values that I don't respect. And that was true too. Like I was definitely working in an environment that I was miserable with people I didn't really connect to. And so I was feeling, I'd feel that there and I would just let myself sink into this like deep, horrific guilt about existing. And then after day three or four, once I'd finally come out of the withdrawals of, because I was doing all, all, all kinds of shit in Darwin, uh, drugs included, everything. And then, so I'd go through like three days of withdrawals and then I'd kind of come out of it like starting to feel okay and getting the hope and the excitement that when I go back home, I'm gonna, everything's going to be fine again. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to meet people. I'm going to go party. It's all going to be good. So then I'd come back into like a bitter state of being. I'd have fly out, go back home, and then start the whole fucking process all over again. So it's a weird thing. Like um, some people say, like alcoholism is when you uh, are drinking constantly. You can't have a night without booze. I, that was not the case for me. I could have plenty of nights without drinking in a row. Once I'd done that, it, I, I almost physically forced myself to do it because I thought I deserved to feel that shitty. It was like self-flagellation. It was like the. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Like, oh, you deserve to feel this because you were such a fuck up while you were at home. And then I'd go home and all of that shame and horror would disappear and I would just start drinking again. And then of course, as soon as I did something shameful and embarrassing that night, then I would fucking go back and keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. I didn't find myself any closer to myself or the people I cared about. I started alienating myself from people that loved me. Um, I was just talking, uh, like when I went to Bali this time, I went with my family who've kind of adopted me and taken care of me for the last 12 years that I've been living in this country. And even when they came to visit me up in Darwin, they basically said, we don't know who you are. We love you. And when you're ready to come back to the land of the living, we'll be here for you. But until then, we don't want to have anything to do with you. And that was fucking like, yeah, that was one of the hardest things I've probably and, and the weirdest part about it, like when I think about it now, obviously it makes me really upset because it was like these people have become my family, the best people in the world. Um, and uh, oh, just the deep shame of knowing that I was not connected to them. Ugh. Yeah, I was fucked. 
But at the time, I just justified it. I just said, oh, they don't fucking understand me. They don't realize that I'm just having fun, that it's all good, that this is what, th- this is what real living is. <laughs> I mean, the amount of fucking justification I did for the shitty behavior I had, it was pretty crazy. So anyway, I stopped drinking because of that. Um, I left Darwin. I moved to Cairns. I realized that it wasn't con- contributing at all in a beneficial way to my life. I cut ties with pretty, pretty much everything that that life was moved back to the Gold Coast. My family, obviously the fucking amazing people that they are, took me back in, gave me a house to live in and helped me clean my shit up. And uh, so drinking to me is uh, was an escape from my life. It was never um, something that helped contribute to my life in a positive way. It probably did when I was younger, but it certainly didn't as I got older. So I spent the last three and a half years thinking, fuck that never contributes in a positive way to my life. There's no reason for me to be drinking. Well, and, and really it was kind of like for the last two and a half years at least and probably almost three years, I was kind of going, why would I? Like, w- what's the point? I was really kind of adamantly against it. And um, over the last six months, uh, I've started to notice that being sober, quote unquote, or not drinking had become kind of like a personality trait of mine in the same way people say, like, I'm a Muay Thai fighter or I'm an artist or, you know, people, a.k.a. me. <laughs> but, like, when we attach uh, these labels to ourselves to, like, be a somebody, I'm realizing uh, that my not drinking had become a faction of my personality that I was using to make myself interesting, make myself a somebody. And it I, again, started to kind of question whether or not that was contributing to my life in a positive way. And in some ways, I mean, it's like, fuck, am I just justifying um, a lapse in judgment and just going to Bali and getting drunk with my family because I could? Like, possibly. I mean, that's totally, definitely true. But what um, I realized is, like, I, I, I felt like I was kind of part of a club, that like the non-drinking club. It made me cool, made me different than everybody else. And again, that's the same old fucking trap that I consistently fall into by constantly trying to attach these labels to myself of being a somebody because that makes me more compelling or more interesting to other people. And the truth is it doesn't. It just makes me more isolated from other people that are trying to relate to me. It doesn't mean that I have to drink to relate to other people, but just the simple fact that I have these labels and these things like I'm a vegetarian, I'm a... Th- it's like... There are reasons why you do things that can be good. And then there are reasons like if you're a vegetarian because you feel like it's the right thing for the planet and it's the best thing for your body and you feel great when you eat that way, that's fucking awesome. But if you're a vegetarian because you're trying to have sex with a girl who's a vegetarian, that's fucking stupid. And so what I started noticing about me being uh, a non-drinker was that I was to the detriment of my own happiness and my own comfort and uh, I was starting to attach to this label and shutting myself down, avoiding hanging out with people that uh, I could otherwise have a nice time with, running away from situations that I felt uncomfortable in because I was starting to feel insecure. Obviously, I go out to hang out with a group of people. Everybody's drinking. I'm not drinking. I feel embarrassed and stupid and everyone's laughing about dumb shit that I'm not relating to. And so I just leave. So instead of um, then even now 
instead of not going to hang out, or sorry, instead of going to hang out with them and then leaving, now I just don't go anywhere. And I just stay at home. I haven't been meeting any new people, having any new experiences. I've just been living this like cyclic life for the last six or eight months and kind of realizing like, fuck, I'm also closing off other aspects of my life that could be providing benefit to me because I have this label on me that I don't drink. So I thought it was worth questioning that and seeing uh, slowly if it would make a difference in my life if I started drinking or not. And it was pretty interesting. Like the experiment was was very interesting. I On my first day there, um, once we got kind of settled into our hotels, we went. I went and met everybody at the pool at the hotel that they were at, and everyone was having bintangs and cocktails around the pool. And I thought, all right, if I'm going to do this, I might as well do it in style rather than just, uh, you know, having a glass of whiskey at my house, which, by the way, I, I'm not drinking any whiskey. Because of my history with whiskey, I think that one's a little bit too close to home. I, I don't know, man. I didn't, want, I didn't want this thing like alcohol to have a thing over me. Now I'm really making excuses. <laughs> um, I'm trying to find all of like the high and lofty reasons why I just got drunk in Bali. <laughs> but, um, so I started out having a couple cocktails in the pool. Um, so I had two my first night, spaced them out, and um, I didn't really feel any different. It was nice. They were very refreshing and tasty and delicious. And uh, I didn't get drunk at all. I didn't even notice anything. It was almost like my body didn't know what to do with the alcohol, so nothing happened at all. I um, went and had dinner. A few of the boys were staying in the pool getting pretty drunk, and I was like, nah, you know, I don't need to just get hammered my first night. I'm going to go out to dinner with some of the other uh, members of my family, and I'm going to be okay. So I did that the first night, no problem, no mishaps. The next day, again, just had like a couple cocktails. At at one point, I had a feeling of like being a little bit lightheaded and a little bit silly. And I was like, oh, fuck, this is what feeling drunk feels like. And then um, within an hour, I got I got used to it again. And it was like, oh, I'm back to my normal self. <laughs> I felt like a little kid, man. I felt like, like I was trying, trying to like monitor whether or not I was drunk or not. It was so funny. Um, and I ended up probably only of the five nights that I was over there or the five days that I was over there, I drunk every day. I drunk something, but I only got drunk on the night of the wedding. And um, it was weird. It was like I'd have two drinks and I'd feel really, if I had two beers straight away, I'd feel really like, oh, fuck, I'm really drunk. And then I'd have three and I'd be totally sober because I think my brain was so not used to being drunk. It didn't know what was happening. I'd get really drunk really fast. For some reason, cocktails didn't do it to me, but beer did. And then and then my body would balance out and I would be like, oh, yeah, I'm good. I'm normal again. Um, and I was aware that I had to fucking ride a scooter around, which I was, I wasn't terrible at it, but I wasn't great. I did fall off at one point. I wasn't drunk when I fell off it. I just forgot how to do a right turn. I'd been riding the scooter for two day, two and a half days around this island, no problems. And then all of a sudden I just came up to a right-hand turn and f- forgot how to do it. <laughs> My bike went straight uh, and the road went right. And I just leaned off to the right and fell down on my arm. <laughs> so stupid. The slow motion crash. Um, but so then, so the night of the wedding, I drunk uh, 
I was just consistently drinking beers. I didn't want to drink anything else. I didn't want to mix any alcohol. I was just drinking beers, hanging out. And I had a very distinct realization that there was no difference in the amount of fun I was having, whether I was drinking or not drinking. I just felt like this state of rigidity was kind of lifted off of me. I didn't need to keep drinking. I, I had about five beers uh, throughout the course of the evening over time mixed in with water. And I never got drunk, but I also never... I, I just, I didn't notice any difference in my state of being. And I was kind of like sitting back watching myself going, I could be having exactly this much fun whether I was drunk or not drunk. And this whole three and a half years of me resisting this thing, really, it's it's a nothing thing. It's like either I do it or I don't, and it makes no difference to me. As I'm not interested in just, like, I think I've just grown up. I think before I just, I, I don't know, man. I, my relationship with it is totally different. It's like I had a few beers and then I went, eh, I don't feel like doing that anymore. And I just stopped and drunk water and went back to myself. And I was sober by the time I had to ride my scooter home. And I felt fine and didn't even ever get hung over. Then the next day after uh, the wedding, after I'd had five beers or something, but it was I think four days of drinking, of having some drinks every day in a row. The next day, I was just completely consumed by anxiety. I had no hangover, no headache, no vomiting, nothing, zero hangover. But I was dead anxious. Like, I I literally felt like um, if I was a car, somebody's foot was just resting on the gas pedal and the brake at the same time. And I was just, my my engine was just revving. And I was so jumpy. I had to ride the scooter around all day. And I had crashed the day before. So there was definitely possibly that was causing me some like late anxiety about getting back on the scooter again. Even though I'd ridden it around all the the other day, the fucking day after. What? No. The afternoon after I crashed, I still rode the scooter around no problem. But the next day, for some reason, I was just like so anxious. And then I had an amazing realization that I didn't live with anxiety I thought my whole life that I've just been an anxious kid and an anxious person and I just lived with anxiety and that was me and that's who I am. And then I realized, no, I was just drunk all the time. And the aftermath of me drinking alcohol is anxiety. And I think it is for most people. I just think most of us think that it's other shit because the thought of drinking and having fun with your friends outweighs the... uh, thought of not doing it. And then, and so we just kind of block it out of our head. Like, no, it couldn't be the alcohol. It's obviously just me. I'm fucked, which is so fucking crazy. You're not fucked. The things that you're putting in your body usually are the things that are making you fucked. And it's also what's happening inside your brain. It's the thoughts that you're allowing to circulate inside your head. And I didn't know if there's possibly some element of like shame of me going, fuck, I've been sober for three and a half years and then I just decided just decided to start drinking again. What does that mean? Am I weak? Am I a shitty person? Whatever, I don't know. Like there was probably some element of that, but I didn't really even feel that. It was just this, like I could not put my finger on it. I was just deeply anxious for the whole fucking day. At one point when we had scootered out to one side of the island uh, and then stopped for lunch, I was about to just tell them, I don't know, leave me here. Just go home. I'm not getting back on that scooter. Leave me here. I'm just going to stay here and rot. And I had to come back to this 
concept of being in the center, this concept of mindfulness. I had to take a break away from everybody, slow my breathing down and try and get back inside my body and try and reconvince myself. Like it's the kind of state, I don't know if anybody else has suffered from anxiety, but you get this like sensation that some imminent danger is right around the corner. Like something terrible is about to happen and you're the only one that knows it's about to happen. You're having a premonition that the worst thing in the world is about to happen. Someone's about to die. You're about to die. You're about to have a terrible accident and um, there's nothing you can do to stop it. And so I could feel myself on the scooter, just my shoulders rising up, my hands clenching, my hands sweating on the handles. And then immediately I was like, oh, I can't turn. Oh, I can't. And so then I this feeling of anxiety that's happening inside my head, this insane fantasy, this crazy thought that's related to nothing is manifesting itself in my physical actions. And that is what leads to actual physical ramifications in the real world. When I'm riding a scooter and I'm stressed and I'm rigid, I can't make a right turn and I eat shit. When I'm relaxed and I'm calm, I have the ability to make the appropriate turn that I need to do. I wasn't bad at riding a scooter. I had a moment where I felt too rigid and scared and then squeezed up and fell over. So um, taking this back to the, going a whole full circle back to the whole concept of Muay Thai, the whole reason why I started this podcast talking about Muay Thai is that your um, it's a really good metaphor for the physical state of being that can be reflected in your um, mental state of being and vice versa. Your mental state of rigidity, stress, uh, distraction, lots of many thoughts going on inside your head and confusion leads to physical ramifications in the real world. So some of the ways that I've learned to deal with this over the course of time, when I was really drinking all the time and really miserable, I knew that drinking wasn't solving my problem because I was ashamed of myself and I felt really bad doing it. I just couldn't stop myself from doing it. So anyway, I've been fucking rambling for too long now and it's time for me to go. But uh, the main point of what I'm trying to get at here is in Muay Thai, in general life, the core linking idea of all of these things is that if you can retain your sense of presence in the immediate present, focus on what you're trying to do and not get wrapped up in chaos and bullshit around you, you will have a much more powerful um, focused effort on the thing that you're trying to do. In particular, if you're trying to work on something creative or working on a martial art or um, a skill you're trying to learn, the more focused attention you can put into that and not listen to the bullshit inside your head, the better off you're going to be in that situation. And also you're going to find your way out of shitty situations better. Also, you're not going to get wrapped up in the bullshit and the chaos of the glitzy fame, money, bullshit that comes with um, trying to achieve success in life. Most of our misery comes from our attachment to an idea that we need to be a something or need to feel a something or need to make somebody else feel a something. All of that shit is bullshit. The only thing that matters is you being right there focused and present with another person, with yourself, with the thing that you're working on. If it helps you to remind yourself by saying, get back to the center, maybe that will help you. I don't know. It, te it's, it helps me. It certainly helps me in fighting. I know that it makes me feel a lot more relaxed and calm when I'm fighting. And also now in me addressing uh, my breaking of being sober, I suppose, for the last three and a half years and me trying to figure out if that was a good thing or a bad thing or right or wrong or if I'm justifying the thing to myself or what the fuck is going on. 
Um, I'm realizing now that like, I guess having an attachment to an idea or a way of being is even if it seems like it's a healthy, positive way of being can also be detrimental to your personal growth. Instead of avoiding a situation and letting this alcohol thing kind of be a cloud over me, I am trying to, I suppose, find a way of managing all of life's nuances in and out with focus and attention and seeing how they go. Try not to let things get too out of control and try not to let something control me to the point where I have to say no. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I hope you guys have had a uh, lovely Easter break or whatever if you do such a thing. Hope Jesus was good to you in your Easter baskets. And if you like the content of this podcast or any other podcast, you can go to lornabremner.com slash support if you want to, or go to patreon.com slash lornabremner and support the podcast there, or just share it, like it on iTunes, uh, listen to it on Spotify, whatever, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to my Facebook pages, you know, all the shit. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with something wonderful and exciting as always. And uh, I will talk to you again soon.